You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. What is happening? It's on the You're listening to the AME Radio Show. Welcome to the AME Radio Show, the show that is the voice of artists and entertainers everywhere. I'm your host, Jason Dowd, and we got a great show for you guys today. Really excited to be here with you. And I have my time machine out. That's right, we are going to go back in time, and I'm really excited to do that today. Because we are going to do one of our last Turn Back the Clock interviews that we have done where we went back to the AME, to where we were the, art, the world of art. And this time I have one of my good friends... Mina, who's going to be, who is actually doing the interview for us at that time, and I'm uh, excited to be able to bring it back. So we're going to be going back to 2009 and talking with Sabin Howard, one of my favorite artists. He is an amazing sculptor, and uh, we're going to be bringing back some of his art and what he does the the most and what he loves the most. And I know if you go check out his work, you'll be inspired as well. And then we have an actress coming on called, Ann, her name is Anna Har, and she is starring in a brand new uh, movie called The Krampus, which is uh, coming out, it's actually coming out for Christmas here. And it's about the alter ego of Santa Claus, which is The Krampus. And now if you were naughty and or you were bad this year, you get the Krampus. And the Krampus is like a demonic figure that would come out and, and tickle kids and, and torture them a little bit. Not not terribly bad to the, the point where they're going to die or get maimed or anything like that. But it makes you not want to be bad. So now we're going to understand why it was so important to be good all year so you didn't have to visit the, the Krampus. Instead, you got the Kringle, right? That's what we really want. We wanted the Kringle. And then we're going to be debuting some brand new music here in just a few minutes. Amazing song. I know you guys are going to absolutely love it. So we're going to be, we got a lot to cover. But before we do that, guys, please go check out our websites, www.theamemagazine.com. While you're there, you'll be able to see all the links to our social media networks, Twitter, uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook, all those places, all in one place. You can also download our app which is free for Apple or Android platforms. You can join up and sign up for our newsletter and get all the information you could possibly want in one place. So go check that out when you get that chance. So now I want to introduce the brand new music that we have today. We have a new single by Garth Adams called Seawall. You can find him on www.garthadams.com. You can also find him on Twitter, which is uh, twitter.com forward slash G-A-A-A-T-H-Adam. And we're going to be playing Seawall right now. Enjoy it. When we come back, we're going to go to commercial break. And then we'll be back with Anna Hart on the line. So don't go anywhere. There's something lost that can't be found. Oh, 
I'm Gladdy, the dachshund, the face of Gladdy's goodies. Are you worried about your pet's health? My parents were too, especially since I developed pancreatitis. They couldn't find any treats I could eat, so they made some. Our natural treats are healthy for all dogs, with and without health issues. We have lots of delicious flavors like chicken, turkey, salmon, sweet potato, beef, and more. With our homemade treats, you won't worry about the contents because they have no chemicals, fillers, or bad ingredients. Go to gladdiesgoodies.com now to get your fur friend a bag and pick them up some swag while you're there. You'll be glad you did. Remember, we have the treats and swag to make their tails wag. Again, that's gladdiesgoodies.com. Again, that's gladdiesgoodies.com. Hey guys, this is Jen Lilly. You can check out my new Christmas CD, Tinsel Time, on my website, jenlilly.com, on iTunes, Amazon, and wherever digital media is sold. Hi, this is Jennifer McGill from the new Mickey Mouse Club, also a new recording artist, and you're listening to AME Radio. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We have on the line with us our special guest. Her name is Anna Har. She is starring in a new movie called Krampus Origins. And she's also got a brand new movie coming out on, on top of that that we're going to be talking to her about called uh, Patsy Lee and the Keeper of the Five Kingdoms. And we're going to be talking about all kinds of different things with her today. So welcome to the show, Anna. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? We're doing good. So, um, I guess before we get into any of the things that, you're, that you got going on, uh, tell us a little, a little bit about yourself. When did you want to become an actress? Well, it's actually really funny. So, when I was around 11 years old, I went out to California because I wanted to start dancing like professionally out there. Mm-hmm. And so, I signed with a dancing agency, and I was actually on my very first job, which was a TV show called Mob. Okay. It was on Fox and Howie Mandel actually hosted the show. And after we filmed that day, I went to a restaurant and Howie Mandel was there. And I decided to talk to him and like, you know, meet him and take pictures with him. And he really liked me. And he wanted me to sign with his wife's agency. So I did. And I signed with his agency uh, for acting. And it was really weird because I had never, you know, really done acting before. I just kind of wanted just to do dance. So one day they called me and they asked if I was interested in doing a commercial and, you know, we were very, you know, skeptical about it. So I flew out to LA, I did the audition and I ended up booking it. And so I was like, wow, maybe I can actually start acting. So from there I started to act. Yeah. Wow. Dancing. What kind of dance did you do? Well, I mainly in LA, it's the main focus there is hip hop. So I trained a lot in hip hop, but I did all styles of dance, so like lyrical, ballet, and contemporary. Did you have a Did you have a favorite? Because I know there's so many different styles, and each one's so different and unique to itself. Did you have one that you just really loved? Yeah, I really enjoyed lyrical the most. Now, what's a little What's lyrical like? Because I'm not used. To, I'm not com- completely familiar with that style. Yeah, lyrical is more like technique. So there's more like turns and jumps and like kicks and stuff. And it's uh, kind of like a slower type dance. It's very pretty and just like, I, I don't know, I really liked performing in it. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so uh, what do you like the most about being an actress? I mean, there's there's things that, you know, you can do to it that's different from dance because you're actually telling a story in, in you know using words as opposed to where dance you're telling stories with your with your movements but there's storytelling there's different characters that you get to be you get to play different people see different places what do you like the most about it i just honestly i just like being on set the most i just love meeting new people and like working with all different types of people and i just really like the relationships you make while you're on set like you bond so closely with this pe- like the these people like on Krampus and on the one that I'm working on now, Patsy Lee, 
you become like friends with them and you just enjoy your time on set and you really miss it when it's wrapped and it's over. Sure. So I feel like that's, and also I like playing like different characters. You know, it's not your typical job. It's something new every day. You go in there, it's a different type of scene. You're playing a different type of character. So it's really fun for me. Was it a little surreal to see yourself on television or on the big screen for the first time? <laughs> yeah, it was. I actually don't really like watching myself because I will probably criticize myself. And then the next time I start acting, it's going to be like more difficult. I become more <laughs> self-conscious. So I try to like stay away from it. But yeah, it is, it's really weird seeing yourself on TV. I'm like, oh, that's me. I actually did that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know this, I know the feeling. For me, I, I'm the exact same way. If I tape anything, I don't like to review it. Uh, but unfortunately, I have to because I got to make sure I didn't screw up anything. But, um, <laughs> I, I know that feeling. And you know what I don't like about hearing myself or seeing myself on television with or even just on the radio sometimes is my voice because it doesn't sound like yeah. the voice that I picture it in my head when I, when I say it. So I always sound different. And that, that kind of freaks me yeah. out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, you're going into this new movie here. We're, let's start off with Krampus because that's kind of what uh, what uh, was was brought to my attention. Um, and this is kind of a uh, it's a horror Christmas film, right? Yes, dark so, fantasy kind of film. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, tell me a little bit about the plot without giving anything away. Okay, so it takes place in, during World War Two. And, I mean, sorry, World War One. sorry. And it's in, takes place in an orphanage and, you know, the evil gets unleashed from the orphanage and, you know, causes trouble. So it's basically, you know, that, just trying to keep everything calm and, like, figuring a way to stop the Krampus. Hmm. Now, with this particular uh, evil that was released, was it something that was conjured up or was it something that happened that just made this place haunted? Um, yeah, so basically what happens is a book uh, comes back into the orphanage and someone opens the book and re uh, unleashes it. Mm. Now, did you ever think about doing a horror film for Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually. I was like, it was cool because I've never really done a Christmas film. I've done tons of horror, mm -hmm. but I've never done a Christmas Doing like something that's both Christmas and horror, but it's really cool because it's a cool mix. I mean, I love those two. Like, Christmas movies are always so fun, and I love watching horror films, and I've done them before, so it's cool. Well, if you listen to the song, there's one song that comes out there and says, um, what we tell, we gather by the fire and sing and, and tell, uh, um, ghost stories. So it's, it's like, it, this may actually kind of go back to an old fashioned, uh, type of, type of trend or something that happened back in the day. So I think that's when I saw this, I was like, wow. That actually kind of brings us back to what they say in the Christ in these Christmas uh, carols, where they tell ghost stories by the fire and stuff. So that's kind of that's kind of fun, and I, I like that they brought that back. Yeah. Now, what what's your character in this particular movie? Um, my character is Adelia, and she's one of the orphans in the orphanage. Um, she's really cute. I really enjoyed playing her, actually. She's very curious, but, and she's, you know, curious about the Krampus, but she's very passionate. Like, she really cares for her friends, and she's, like, willing to literally do anything for her friends and the people who she cares about. Now, with your character, was she a skeptic, or is she somebody that actually believes in stuff like this? Oh, no, she's, like, a complete believer in this type of stuff, in the magic and, you know, all the evil spirits. She's, like, 100% believes in it. Now, what was some of the things that drew you to want to play this character? Well, one of the things was um, I knew that Joseph and Robert Conway would be attached to the project. I worked with them before, so I just, you know, was a good, a good excuse to work with them again. Also, I really liked the the script, and, you know, like you said before, mixing the two genres of uh, Christmas and horror was, you know, really, really interested me. And, you know, I also loved the character um, of Fidelia. Now, you said you played a lot of different uh, horror movies before. What are some of the things mm -hmm. that is important to bring forth with your acting to make the horror movie uh, either intense, scary, or believable? Well, in these movies, I'm usually the one that's the scary person, I guess you could say. 
So what I kind of did to prepare for those roles was just kind of like watched a, a lot of like scary movies that had to do with like creepy like little girls and tried to like mock them kind of in a way. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like took a you know what I was scared of when I was younger to kind of play that and use that into the films and stuff. Now, do you have one of those classics, you know, uh, bone-chilling screeches and screams that, like, you see all these uh, classic people having on, on these horror movies? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did you develop that, and how did you find out that you had that ability? I just kind of did it on set. They asked for it, and I did it, and it was really loud, and kind of, you want to cover your ears, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you blow your throat out doing that, or is it just... Um, sometimes. Yeah, I have before. <laughs> so when you blow it out, and let's just say you need to do another take or something like that, how do you fix it? How do you get it, how do you get back to normal really quick? Do you have a special, like, uh, serum or, or uh, technique that you can do to soothe your throat a little bit so you can do another take? Yeah, well, normally when they ask for those those types of takes, I usually, it's something that's towards the end of the day so it's like either the last shot of the scene or the shot of the day so you know my throat you know doesn't sound scratchy for the rest of the day so it's usually the last shot hmm. that makes up that makes a lot of sense so, <laughs> yeah. so was there anything in this movie that actually freaked you out because sometimes you know it's different it, it's when you watch the thing since you don't really know what's happening it kind of freaks everybody out, but when you know the script, it really shouldn't freak you out, but sometimes the stuff is so realistic looking that it, it can actually, you know, kind of stop you up a little bit. Did you have anything like that in this particular movie that just kind of said, wow, that's uh, that's a little freaky, too much for me? Um, no, not really, because, you know, I read, read through the script and I know what to expect. And also, when you're on set, you don't really feel alone. There's, like, tons of people around you, so you feel safe and secure, so... You know, nothing really is, doesn't really scare me on set. What were some of the things that really impressed you about this movie? I say, um, besides the script, I think the cast. The cast was great for the film. I feel like everyone, you know, did their own part and, you know, really played the characters. You know, when I was first reading the script, they kind of reading the script, they kind of like brought it to life and I pictured them as those characters. Did you see the movie since it's, since it's been released? No, I, I mean, I've seen, I have seen it. Um, so yeah, I have seen, I've seen tons of clips, but I haven't seen the whole thing because I don't really like watching myself. Yeah, it's true. I remember you saying that, but, um, with the stuff that you did see, what are some of the things that impressed you the most about the final production? I think the the set. The set was done really, like, the, the design and the production of it all. You know, they paid attention to the tiny details. And and I also like the camera motions and what Joseph used. I, I think it, it, that's what kind of, I felt really proud about that. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, the, the movie is out, I believe. Um, if it... Uh, you may or may not know where they could see it, but do you have any idea where it's where it's available right now or where they can see it? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, available on DVD at Walmart. Um, and I believe you can get it on video on demand as well. Cool. Now, you just are, you're in a brand new movie that's coming out here too called uh, Patsy Lee and the Keeper of the Five Kingdoms. Without giving too much away, because you don't really want to blow that away since it hasn't been released yet, what are, what's some of the basic overview of the movie? Well, it's um, a teen uh, comedy action film. I just, I don't know how much I can completely say about it, but, you know, it has um, the cast involved, James Hong, who was in Big Trouble in Little China, uh, Dave, Dave Sheridan, uh, Dante Basco, Basco, sorry, and Lydia Hurst, and yeah. And what do you play in this movie? I play the character of Squirrel. She's Squirrel? One of the kids. Squirrel, yeah, that's her name. I love that. Susan Squinowski. Her nickname is Squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, she, yeah, she's crazy. She's very energetic. Um, she's really fun to play, actually. I've been having, like, a great time on set playing that, that character, because I could just let loose and have fun with her. 
Now, what's the keeper of the five kingdoms? What are the five kingdoms? Well, again, I'm not sure how much I could say, but I guess you could say we we are the keepers of the five kingdoms. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So, um, what did you like? What did you like the most about playing this particular character? I, I just with Squirrel, I just just said I can have fun with her, and then I get to work with Zach Ward, who I've worked with before. He's actually directing the film. Um, I've known him for five years, and I've done I think about four films with him, maybe three or four. And so it's really good to like work with um, him again and like get to play a character that it's just, you know, it's fun for me. And I just, you know, she's not that serious, you know, the character. She's very funny. She's a goofball. Have you ever played a type of movie like this before? No, I have not. So was there <laughs> any... something ch- like this. Go ahead. No, I'm done. You're fine. Oh, I was going to say, so does, did this pose any challenges for you? Like something, since you've never played something like this, did, was, there, was there any challenges you had to uh, overcome to play the character or um, make, the, make the movie a little bit more uh, believable for, for you, you know, and make it, make it flow? Yeah, um, there was one thing actually in the film, Squirrel, the character, she has braces. And I don't have braces in real life, so they had to get like or kind of like a an Invisalign retainer mm-hmm. and put braces on it. So talking with them is a little difficult because I have kind of like a lisp and I have cuts all over my mouth currently from the braces. And trying to get my sentences out and my lines without them, you know, making them coherent and stuff is a bit difficult. But other than that, it's been really it's been pretty easy. But isn't that kind of how people with braces talk in these television shows anyways, in these movies? So, I mean, I th- I th- that would probably make it a little bit, a little bit more believable, wouldn't it? Yeah, she, yeah, she is kind of supposed to have a list. Actually, originally they wanted like an extreme list on her, but they decided to tone it down. So, yeah, it does, it does make it believable that I, it is a bit more difficult for me to speak with them. It's just, you know, I just don't want to make, you know, speak like mumble jumble in front of the camera. True. True. Now, do you can you do a lisp if they asked you to? Because that's not easy to do. Yeah, with the braces, I can completely like do a lisp. It's pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Now, do you know any of the plans for this particular movie? Do you know if it's going to be uh, shot for the for an actual movie theater pro- uh, release or just DVDs? Or you don't know yet because it's still kind of in in the production stages. Yeah, I mean, I'm not completely sure yet because it is, we're still filming it, but, you know, they would eventually love to get it possibly on Netflix, um, you know, uh, in the theaters and stuff, but, you know, you don't really know until the movie's completed. And I'm pretty sure, since it's already the end of November here, that it's probably going to be coming out in 2019. I'm, 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 a, I'm taking a wild shot at this, but um, am I right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, most likely, yeah, probably 2019. Well, Anna, I know we've got a few minutes left here, and I wanted to, uh, you know, it is the Christmas season, you know, we're, we're Thanksgiving, Christmas. Uh, tell us some of your favorite, um, tell us what, some of the things that you're most thankful for, and also tell us some, maybe some of your favorite Christmas uh, experiences that you've had growing up so far. Okay. Well, I'm very thankful for my family. You know, they've been there uh, for me since day one, literally, and they've always supported me. And I'm thankful to be able just to have them in my life. I'm also thankful for my dogs because I love them so much. Um, I'm thankful for all the opportunities that I get for acting. I've been very lucky to book this much and, you know, be able to sit here and talk to you, uh, which is really exciting. Um, for experiences for Christmas, I don't know, just like spending time with my family. Like last year, we had a bunch of my family come over who were from Ireland, so it's you know, fun to spend time with them because I don't get to see them that mm-hmm. often. And I had a great Christmas last year with them. And this year, my grandmother's coming out for Christmas. So I'm very excited. And That's yeah. Cool. That's cool. And now, have you ever gone Christmas caroling? No, I have not. <laughs> Do you sing good? Because I don't sing good. That's the only reason why I haven't gone out yet. <laughs> um, no, actually, I've never really tried singing. Um, so I don't know how well I can sing, but <laughs> I'm kind of too scared to sing. <laughs> I don't blame you. I'm the same way. I, I don't want to get out there and sound like a uh, sound like Scuttle on uh, Little Mermaid. You know what I mean? 
because um, <laughs> I think I would. Well, Anna, we're, we got about a minute left. Uh, where can people follow you? Where can people see you on uh, social media, websites, anything like that? Okay, sorry. Um, well, if you just look Google Anna Har, a bunch of things will pop up, like my IMDb. You can see on uh, you can see the productions that I'm working on, currently working, uh, going to be working on. Actually, in January, I'm going to be shooting another film with Robert. That's called Eminence Hill, and I'm super excited for that. It's a Western. So you can see all that type of stuff on my IMDb. Also, I have a Twitter. Um, my Instagram is Anna underscore Har underscore actor. I post there a lot. And, yeah, just basically Google me, and you'll find everything. I have a YouTube channel, but, yeah, that's kind of old. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Anna, thank you so much for coming on and spending some time with me. This has been so much fun, and I wish you all the best. I can't wait to see this movie when it comes out because I happen to love horror, horror movies myself. And uh, Christmas to get together, that's going to be just as uh, – that's going to be an amazing thing to, to be able to put together and watch. And um, hopefully we'll be able to get you back on when some of these newer uh, these newer movies that you're doing release. Yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we have more. Don't go anywhere. Do you love horror? The strange and unusual fantasy creatures or urban legends? Do you want to step inside a dream or nightmare? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out internationally exhibiting artist Jason Dowd and his award-winning photographic collections by visiting www.imaginationartstudios.com. Get inside his mind and experience his inner weird. <laughs> Hi there, this is Kim Coles, and you can find my newest book, Open Your Gifts, at OpenYourGiftsBook.com. That's www.OpenYourGiftsBook.com. I hope you'll pick up a copy. Would love to have you read it. Bye. Hey, this is Marshall Hilton. You're listening to AME Radio with your host, Jason. Kick butt, Jason. Sabin Howard and his wife Tracy Slatten. Sabin is a master sculptor whose body of work has been compared to that of Don Tello by the New York Times. He's here to speak with us about his evolution as an artist and the true meaning of art. And his wife Tracy is a best-selling author recognized by various publications such as the New York Times. Thank you guys for joining us tonight. How are you? Hi, how are you, Mina? Hi, thanks for I'm doing that. great. Good. Okay, well, I'd like to start off by getting to know you two as artists. Um, first of all, um, Sabin, how, when and how did you get into sculpting or just art in general? How did that come about for you? Um, well, it wasn't like I was an artist as a teenager. Actually, I was a very rebellious kid, and um, my position on, on art was kind of, it didn't exist. Um, so it I came from a family that was like really well educated and were PhDs, and they kind of expected me to go to college, um, and that really wasn't the path that I wanted to choose and become an academic like the rest of my family. And so I, I ended up um, dropping out of college, and I got a job um, in a woodworking shop in um, South Philly. And mm -hmm. um, there was a day where I actually remember the day and the time. It was October 19th. 1982 at 4 o'clock that I had like this flash that I had to do something with my life and um, I, I decided that I wanted to become an artist and I had the idea because I'd grown up in Italy and looked at Renaissance art a lot as a teenager and um, young child that 
art was something that you worked within a structure. So I felt like, okay, I'm going to go to art school, and then I'm, this way I'm going to learn how to do it, and then I can make art. So it was that day that I, I quit my job at the woodworking shop, and I called the art school and went over there and met with the admissions director, and I got a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. And um, I started doing the exercises every night and produced like 90 drawings in 90 days. I went back, and um, she said, wow, these are these will get you into art school. And um, she was she was right, and that's how it kind of started. This was 30 years ago. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's amazing. So when you started pretty late, too, and yeah. you already just kind of had a knack for art before <clears throat> even realizing it. Yeah, well, there's, here's the thing. Um, I was born in New York, and at three months of age, we went back to Italy, to Torino, and this is 1963, and being in Italy had a profound effect on how my brain developed as um, a toddler between the ages of one and three. Um, visual beauty was something that I really got. Um, it, it was very impressive to see stuff like these big piazzas, these big Gothic cathedrals, um, in the order and structure of um, Torino, that's, that's the town in northern Italy, or city, um, where I grew up, it's very um, structured. And then mm -hmm. I came back to New York, um, and my parents were really radical, um, I, I call them socialists or communists, actually. They were involved in the Poor People's Campaign and uh, ended up going on a lot of these like anti-Vietnam War marches, which were very rebellious in nature. So, so, and so this is like, you have traditionalism, and then you come back, and it's like, let's work outside the box. Let's um, think for ourselves, down with the establishment. And and I think this had a profound effect on my development as a human being and ultimately as an artist, because here I am, I'm bucking the tides of, of modernism, and I'm I'm doing something that is traditional, but I'm not trying to like re, re, re bring back you know Renaissance art to today. It's more that I want to use that art form and then do something completely radical and modern with it that's contemporary and talks about our human condition in these modern times. So that, that's... that's the, the radical part is that um, since Marcel Duchamp foisted a urinal on us 100 years ago, people, mm -hmm. you know, which had like five minutes of entertainment and shock value, and then it was done, and people have been redoing it and doing it and doing it, and they're still doing it, and it's it's stupid. It's It's overdone. And at yeah. that, when Marcel Duchamp did that, you know, what he sort of initiated was a kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, people getting rid of the great tradition, you know, the great foundation of art and all the sort of seminal problems of form and light that artists deal with through the millennia, not just through the centuries, but really through the millennia. And there's something in that tradition to teach us now that we can use, that can benefit and enrich our you know, the, the art that we have now. Mm -hmm. I read that you guys have a very strong opinion on postmodernism art. You believe it's ugly, worthless crap. Am I correct? Yeah. Yes. Well, look, here's the <laughs> okay. um, It's like I'm not going to just say that that's crap. I, I, I'm going to say that there's a lot of figurative art that's being done today that doesn't have the education and the culture behind it to make it something that is really profound. So you can totally do the same thing with the figure and it's ugly worthless crap as well <laughs> yeah well you know there's two things here one is that you know i know your magazine is called the expressionist which is really cool but there is a difference between self-expression and art there's a profound mm -hmm. difference and so yeah. many you know kids nowadays seem to think that any old junk they slop onto a canvas or slop together in the middle of the floor is a painting or a sculpture and that's simply not true that's silly and then there's um you know the other day Sabe and I were in a kind of a private art gallery of a man who's been doing this for many you know for like 30 years or 25 years and there he was selling some paintings I look up and it's a sheep wearing I mean it looked like a cartoon figure almost a sheep wearing clothing and it was just so awful and just so mm -hmm. stupid that I think that really the whole world of art you know is losing something and it's been degraded 
by the kind of stupidity that's put out there. By stupidity, I also include people like Jeff and, you know, balloon animals that are made by graduate students at the New York Academy and not by Jeff Koons at all, but are sold for millions of dollars. It's a kind of, you know, mass stupidity. So Sabin and I are here saying the emperor has no clothes. The emperor has no clothes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's true in a way. Pretty much anyone can obviously take some paint, you know, splatter it onto a canvas and they can call it art. And you know, I'm not I'm not one to say that it's not art because I'm not a painter or anything, but from your guys' well, perspective, we will. we'll say it's not art. <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. You guys have the right to say that because you know so much more than I do about it. In your perspective, what is it that makes something art? What techniques need to be included? What um oh, I don't, What I do don't, you need to include? Um yeah, let's talk about where where art should go. Okay? So if you have a structure that you work in, let's take some stuff that's abstract. For example, Richard Sierra, who does those big plates, you know, those plates, or even Jackson Pollock. I'm not going to like poo-poo that at all. It's um, it, it's vitality, okay, vitality of spirit. So mm-hmm. let's and let's make this more concrete now. So when the modernists began doing stuff after World War II. That was a really important moment because it was bringing back excitement and and vitality to the art world. What was going on at that moment with classicism is that it was becoming really academic and, let's be blunt about it, very boring. Right. The neoclassicists had become saccharine and, you know, overdone and too polite and just boring. You know, I think art has to move you. It has to inspire you. It has to uplift you. It has to, you know, it it serves as a catalyst for internal change so that you mm-hmm. transcend your ordinary state of being. Well, then there's another then and the other element, okay, be, beyond that is okay, that's I would like to see a separation between the real world and the art world so that um the art world's more of a directional element that guides where the real world goes. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and so if I go back to like, if all right, let's go back to two thousand years with the Greeks. The Greeks made art that represented them on a cultural level, and it explained where they expected their citizens and. Um, people's minds to gravitate towards. Now, I'm not saying that we live in that kind of society anymore. It's become extremely pluralistic, where you have so many options. Okay, but it's you don't you don't just make art that's decorative. And it, and and here's the third element: um, it loses its sacredness and its importance. Especially, and this is a word that I think is extremely important: sacredness. Because what does that mean? It means that it is it's not of ordinary or average importance it's mm-hmm. of divine importance okay and so there was a time in in the history of man where in the very beginning with the cave paintings and like pieces like the uh, venus of willendorf where the um, art actually was a moment of life and death and we don't live that way anymore but as things have progressed to this modern moment art doesn't even matter anymore so this this three three the trifecta you have vitality of spirit okay and then um that it's transformational and the last one is that it's sacred okay so in your opinion that trifecta that you just mentioned what artists in our day or you know in the past um encompasses all of those qualities who do you guys look up to well, as an artist? well I like there's a great besides Saban's work I think he's wonderful <laughs> there's a wonderful painter named John Mora I think he's doing that um, I go back and forth about Odd Nerdrum but um, I think he's definitely doing the real thing he's just extraordinary his paintings will move you and they will change your state and you know they, they are catalysts and his technique is just ravishingly gorgeous who else they've been mm-hmm. like? Well, this, um, I, I think that's a good way to start. Let's just start with Odd Nerdrum, for example, because he's very well known. So mm-hmm. um, do you know who that is? Anyway, uh, sorry, I don't. Okay, well, let me, for the audience, he's he comes out of Norway, um, and I think he was shown at Forum Gallery in New York City, and he paints in a style that's very reminiscent of like a Rembrandt, really um, a lot of thick impasto on the canvas, 
And the subject matter, though, is very modern. It's very nihilist. Um, don't you know agree with the, the philosophy, but I do agree with the concept that he's doing something that is larger than himself as an artist. So it extends beyond just him him doing art in the studio. And this is the issue of like sacredness because it 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 goes beyond the individual artist and it becomes art for a community or a large segment of society. Mm-hmm. Because it because it's understood, you know. So it, this is really important. Um, I want to add one last element to the three things that we talked about. Um, okay. Lately, let's say in the last fifty years, um, the actual words about the art or the the writing or the art manual about the actual piece that's hanging on the wall has become more important than the actual art object itself. So you have this unbalanced quality where the words become what's important and the art, the so-called art, loses its value. It's no longer important because if those words are fantastic, then that piece of art is fantastic. And I think what I what I I'm not I don't because David's talking about the loss of visual impact in art. Yeah, what are what are mm-hmm. what, what what a piece looks like when you look, you know, when you look at some a lot of the great um, classics, you know, when you look at a Michelangelo sculpture, when you look at the Sistine Chapel ceiling, when you look at the Mona Lisa, when you look at Polycleitos' sculptures, when you you know so many of these masters, and you look at a Fra Angelico painting, you know, when you look at someone who knows what they're doing, when you look at that art. You get it viscerally. You don't need a Ph.D. or an art gallerist to tell you why it's good. You feel it in your bones, in your gut. It moves you. If you mm-hmm. get the explanation, it enriches your understanding, but it's not crucial. So much of this kind of concept art that's putting put out there, which um, Tom Wolfe calls um, tenure. tenure art, because people go and do something silly and then they get tenure at a university because people are afraid to say support the them. right the support the system. People are afraid to say the emperor has no clothes. This is an art. This is entertainment. Um, so much of that you cannot understand it, or y- you don't even care until someone makes a really beautiful and by someone like Donald Cuspit, you know, writes something really, you know, and his words are so beautiful. You can okay, it's great words. Must be a good piece of art because he's writing something so nice about it. Yeah. And, not true. When yeah, you, you need to feel it when really you see great, it. Right. When mm-hmm. you see something and it just overwhelms you like the ocean rushing over you, that's one way you know it's great art. You don't need to have a Ph.D. yammering in your ear about why it's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Sabin, where do yeah. you... Where are some different places that your sculptures have appeared and how do you get your inspiration for your sculptures? Um. Well... I, I've shown my work, at, well, the Time Warner Center in Columbus Circle, a Millennia Partners bought a piece there and showed it there for six years. Uh, I've shown works at the Institute of Architecture and Art in New York uh, okay. and, and collected worldwide, actually. And I think I have well, close to 200 art collectors right now. Oh, and wow. They don't, just, they don't just buy one piece. They buy one, and then it kind of grows on them, and then they buy several. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, Sabin's works go in, you know, there was always from the most, most ancient times, you know, way back in prehistory, before even the Egyptians, in our earliest civilizations, there was a link between sculpture and sacred space. And you still feel that with Sabin's work. If a piece, you know, his sculpture, like we have an Apollo in our living room, the Apollo's this gorgeous six-foot-tall man whose arms are outspread and he radiates life and he and light and he has an uplifted chest and he's so powerful and he's you know an archetype of grace and light and healing and just this wondrousness and to have it in the living room it changes the feel of the whole living room changes the house changes the mm-hmm. space so it's yeah. when you you know just to walk into my living room it's a different feeling with a sculpture there and I think Sabin's collectors feel that well let me talk about what you just asked me um how do I get my inspiration? It's, I work on a very regular basis, which is almost like eight to five, and and it's a steadiness mm-hmm. that. Um, but if I, I just want to interject one thing to this, and it's like sure. what makes the work like really different, and w- what would I like to see more in expressionist art? Because I'm I'm not interested in making art that's boring, or dead, or traditional. In fact, it's okay. So it's 
I'm at a stage now after 30 years where the actual technique is not something that I'm that interested in. The technique is a way of delivering a message. And so my inspiration is actually about changing how people react to art, how I feel about art, because I, I make this type of art to bring me back to the feeling that I had as a child when I looked at these piazzas and beautiful things in Italy when I was really little. So this is why I'm doing it. It's to get mm-hmm. that feeling back. Okay, And um, I think it's kind of like important as an artist to explain that it, what the art is about. It's not about technique at all. The technique is just a driving force or a conductor to create a sense of well-being when you I mean, look you, at it. You have to understand that there's so few artists today have Sabin's technique. So mm-hmm. the, the idea is to talk about where we want to go. And so I, w- I want to make art that points you in a direction that's uplifting. Uh, and so I'm moving away from a concept where modernists saw art as something that brings you down or alienates you, or the so-called realism stuff, because that's, that's actually a misnomer. It's not realist, it's just like negative art. So I'm trying to create something that's positive in nature. Okay. Okay, so you two obviously have very similar views on art and what makes it meaningful. And I know you both um, wrote a book together called The Art of Life. Tell me about that. Um, go ahead. Oh, well, this would probably be a Tracy spot, <laughs> the author here. Well, Sabin, you know, constant monologues about his art. You know, he's constantly talking about it. I always say that for this is a little bit old-fashioned, but I think there's a lot of truth in it, that for men their work is their God, and for women it's their relationships, um, which doesn't mean that any woman is any less uh, committed to her work than a man, just that that's kind of the way we tend to be built, I think. So Sabin's yeah. constantly, you know, long, excruciating monologues about his art, this, that, and the other thing, but, yeah, so I tune in, I tune out, I tune in, and one morning I was tuned in, and I said to him, you know, we had to write a book, because what you're saying is actually really important. So we started this book together, and it's it's a survey of sculpture. It's called The Art of Life because it's about figurative art. It's about the art of the body. Um, and mm-hmm. as human beings, the one thing we cannot get away from is our body. Once you get away from your body, you're dead. So as long as you're alive, you're in the body, and the body is of the most utmost importance. So The Art of Life, The Art of the Body, figurative art, and it's classical figurative art, um, and which has this, this tradition that I mentioned earlier, which goes from the earliest, earliest times um, to now. And it's a vital art. This is not archaeological. It's still vibrant. It's still breathing. The flesh of these figures, of these sculptures, is still warm to the touch. And But it starts a long, long time ago. So we have something to gain from knowing about this art. So the art of life is partly a survey um, about classical figurative art, from the earliest times till now. And so it goes through some of the, you know, the Greeks, Polykleidos and Praxiteles and Egyptian art, you know, which is so beautiful and so instantly recognizable, the ancient Egyptian art, and, um, and then all the way through the Renaissance and, you know, Michelangelo and the Baroque, Bernini, and then in Canova, the neoclassicist and Rodin and Sabin Howard. And it, but it's also kind of a really in-depth explanation because people look at Sabin's sculptures and they say, how do this? Even mm-hmm. the cons- even the, um, the knowledge that this craftsmanship is still alive, that even that is, is a wonder to people right now. So when people look at Sabin's sculptures and they always say, how do you do this? There's a lot in the book about how he does it. What's his process? How do you go from you know, a steel armature that looks like a stick figure to an Aphrodite who looks like the most beautiful woman you can imagine. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. You know, and Sabin takes, he uses a little tiny sculpting tool the size of a pencil, and he puts on a tiny scrim of clay. I mean, it's a little bit of clay with each, you know, each motion of his hand. So how, you know, it's sort of miraculous that he's building wow. a life form. So this book sort of answers this question. It's a it's a survey of figurative art, classical figurative art, and from the earliest times till now, it's a real in-depth look at Sabin's art, what he's created, and it's also, you know, a lot about the process. How do you do it? And what's important in this kind of art? Sabin did a lot of drawing. He's taught he taught for more than 20 years. 
um, at a lot at colleges and the post and the graduate level, and um, you know he has a lot of knowledge to kind of pass on. And in the back of this book, The Art of Life, there's his uh, anatomical drawings, which are extraordinary. It's like having Leonardo's anatomical drawings. It's they're mm-hmm. amazing. They're really beautiful to look at. So that's the yeah. art of life. Sabin, you want to say anything about? for my next question. Yeah, no, um, Sabin, I. I'm also one of those people that looks at sculptures a lot, and I wonder how do people do that. But a bigger question I always have is how long does that take? How, how long does it usually take you to make one of your sculptures, depending on what it is, obviously? Yeah, the um, big one, the last of the Apollo piece, took um, 3,400 hours working from life models. Okay. Um, that's a five-foot seven. Wow. So you can see it on the website, um, which it's it's just my name, S-A-B-I-N, Sabin Howard. Dot com. So, okay. um, and then let's say I'm doing a smaller figure now. I'm doing a 28-inch figure. It's still taking me um, close to 1,200 hours to to do it. It's look, I make one piece, but then you make multiples of it through a, with a mold. So that's available for maybe 20 to 25 people each piece. Um, okay. There's a movement in the culinary world called the slow food movement. A lot of restaurants where they're they're not slapping food out of a microwave. This is not McDonald's. This is real food. It's got real ingredients, and it takes you a while to cook, and it's absolutely fantastic, and it nourishes your soul and your body. Yeah, um, and it, the kind of the parallel to that is the slow art movement, where which is kind of what Sabin's doing, where this is not art that's slapped out and thrown out into the world so he can get tenure in a university. This is beautiful art that nourishes your soul, that is going to nourish your mind, it's going to enrich your life, it's going to make you feel better, it's going to make you feel something good. And it takes mm-hmm. him a while to make each, each piece. It's, you know, it's not slapdash. And so yeah. Stephen Howard, and we in the book, The Art of Life, is available on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com and our websites, TracyLSlatton.com and SabinHoward.com. Okay. All right. Well, Tracy, um, a lot of your, you know, this one's obviously focused on art, but your other novels, your other pieces of work, are they mostly centered on art too? Or what are what are some of the other ones about to give the audience just an idea? Oh, well, I wrote, my first novel was called Immortal, and it is set, it's the story of an orphan boy in Renaissance Florence, and I Mm -hmm. call it a rags-to-riches-to-burnt-at-the-stake story, and, you know, it's like, it's set in the Renaissance, and people ask about that, and the joke I always say is that, you know, if your mate smokes, people pick up smoking as self-defense, well, I had to pick up the Renaissance as self-defense living with Sabin, so... um, (laughs) There's a lot. And then I wrote a vampire novel called The Botticelli Affair. And the main character, Layla, is this kind of a hot ticket art forger. And she's like the Michael Jordan of art forgers. And she can forge and paint anything in the hand of the old masters. So that's, you know, I guess it influenced it. And then another, the most recent novel is called Fallen. And it's the first in a dystopian romance trilogy set, you know, right after a global cataclysmic apocalypse. So, um, and the main character, Emma, is an artist, although it doesn't really figure because these people are really just trying to stay alive in a world that's ending. So, um, so in, in a lot of ways, Sabin's art, you know, it, it sort of permeates our life. I mean, we actually do sit at the table, the dinner table, and discuss Michelangelo. I mean, our seven-year-old daughter can talk about Michelangelo because Sabin's obsessed. Wow. And, you yeah. know, so it's part of our daily discourse. Well, I think, you know, yeah. something that's really important. Um, to us, and it's not—it's not to be taken lightly, because it actually has a huge impact on everybody's life. When you decide, as a cultural a culture collectively, to throw away um, stuff that has been around for years and actually has tremendous value, okay, so you're going to throw it away because you want to rebel and create a new culture and a new way of life. Okay, well that's great, but you need to replace it with something. And my issue with a lot of the art that has proceeded, um, the stuff that came 100 years ago, is that it decides to be rebellious, but then, okay, fill in the void. Fill in the gap if you're going to chuck it. And put it, mm-hmm. put, give, give me something that, it, that has great value, that is sacred. That's not necessi- I'm not saying that on a religious level, because I'm not a religious person. I believe in spiritual things, but I don't believe in following um, mantras. And so mm-hmm. the issue that you asked me before, what makes art 
what would you like to see in art that makes it so important? And that's that it's a translation from the real world and going into another realm that's actually much, much more, uh, let's say, of a higher level of consciousness. gives this sense of transformation when you look at it. And so it's the art world, which is a divine state. And that's what was once considered the norm. Today it's like, okay, I'm going to make a piece of art, and I'm not going to even put it on a pedestal. I'm going to leave it on the floor. And so what's its value if it's on the floor? It has no value. Mm -hmm. And that's a really scary thought because that art represents you and I as human beings and our culture. So what it's actually saying is that we have no value. And Mm -hmm. that's upsetting. And that's why I'm so passionate about what I do and actually... That's why Tracy wrote this book, because I think that people don't know what has happened because they, it hasn't been examined. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of... Are very, I'm sorry, continue. <laughs> no, no, there's a kind of, like, uh, global Holden Caulfield-esque, like, despair, which started in something real, which, uh, you know, this kind of disillusionment, massive, you know, um, our collective consciousness as a human race, I think, really went into a kind of shock and despair with World War One, which was supposed to be the war to end all wars, and 20 years later, we're in World War Two, and there's a sort of devastation. The 20th century was a century of repeated genocides, repeated, not just the Holocaust, but repeated genocides throughout the world. And I think there's this kind of shock and disillusionment and despair in the zeitgeist, and... Um, we don't have to live there. We don't have to stay there. We can look up, look to something better. We can transform ourselves. We can use the 20th century as a stepping stone to be better as a human species. That's you know yeah. that's what Sabin's art is talking about. Don't stay stuck in the adolescent angst. Move forward. Yes, we had a bad century where too many people, too many good people died horribly, but we can move forward and be better than we've been. Mm-hmm. All right, you guys, thank you so much. That's about all we have today. And I think you guys are great, very passionate. You feed into each other so much. You help him with his art. He obviously helps you with your writing, and you guys are just great. But that about does it for tonight's show. I want to thank everyone out there for listening. Do you guys just one more time want to let everyone know about your websites and how to... Yeah, um, it's, well, Sabin, Howard dot com and uh Tracy go ahead. Tracy L Slatten dot com. That's T R A C I L S S and Sam L A T T O N dot com. And thank you, Mina, for having us on and thank Jason for us. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. You guys are wonderful. Have a good All right. night. I want to thank okay. good night. Hey guys, it's Michael Campion. I play Jackson Fuller on Fuller House and you're listening to AME Radio. All right, guys, we're back from 2009 and that was Sabin Howard. We're really excited to be able to uh bring that back Now, tomorrow we have our actual Christmas show, so you're not going to want to miss that. We are on every Friday and Saturday, and if you want to find out where we are and listen to us on the radio, here we are. AMFM247.com, and there are 11 AMFM stations every Friday at 10 p.m. and every Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can also find us on WKLAP.com every uh, Friday at 11 a.m. and every Saturday at 7 p.m. Radio Love every Saturday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can also find us on iHeart, iTunes, Spotify, and Radio uh, Phoenix Broadcasting.com on demand. All right, guys, we'll see you tomorrow for our Christmas show. Keep those creative juices flowing. That's the end. We're done. Calm down, people. Calm down. Okay? That's it.